You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 300th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. Okay, can I just take a moment to say episode number 300? Wow. Wow indeed. Well, that's enough (laughs) self-congratulation. So, back to the business at hand. As y'all recall, with the last show, we talked about Robert E. Lee's reasons for wanting to, as he put it, assume the aggressive. We saw that in the aftermath of the Battle of Chancellorsville, Lee decided that instead of remaining on the defensive and waiting for the next federal offensive, he would seize the initiative and lead his army north a second time. Such a movement had many potential benefits. It would disrupt federal plans for the summer campaigning season and take the armies away from war-ravaged central Virginia, giving the people of Lee's home state a respite from the hard hand of war. A march north would also give the men of Lee's army a chance to gather much-needed provisions from the rich agricultural countryside of Pennsylvania. More than this, though, Robert E. Lee went north seeking to achieve a battlefield victory of real consequence. Lee realized that if he could deliver a crushing defeat to the Army of the Potomac, it would capture the headlines, and although Lee doubted that a victory on northern soil would compel the Federals to loosen their grip on Vicksburg out in Mississippi, a significant Confederate victory in the Eastern Theater would, he reasoned, at the very least helped to offset the probable loss of that rebel Riverside stronghold. And then, politically, a victory by Lee's army on northern soil would also further bolster the influence of the anti-war Democrats in Congress, the Copperheads, who were eager to negotiate a peace settlement with the Confederacy. A battlefield victory by Lee in the summer of 1863 would only strengthen the hand of Abraham Lincoln's political opponents, and thereby possibly cripple the administration's efforts to prosecute the war. The rebel commander knew that the real issue in 1863 was the northern will to continue the war, so he marched north seeking a battlefield victory of real consequence, one that would go a long way toward wearing down the enemy's resolve and convince the northern public that this war was a contest they couldn't win. 
After the Richmond Conference, where he met with Confederate President Jefferson Davis and Secretary of War James Seddon, Robert E. Lee returned to Army headquarters at Fredericksburg on May 17th, and over the next two weeks, he shaped his plans for the Pennsylvania campaign. Change was the order of the day as Lee made the restructuring of the Army of Northern Virginia's high command his first priority. You see, Stonewall Jackson's death meant that there would have to be a new commander for the Second Corps, and Lee seized on that need as an opportunity, an opportunity to change the basic makeup of the Army. Under the old setup, the two corps each numbered 30,000 or more men, but as Lee explained to Jefferson Davis in a May 20th letter, that gave the corps commanders, quote, more than one man can properly handle and keep under his eye in battle. Under the old setup, that is, under Stonewall Jackson and James Longstreet, Lee had created two corps large enough for both men to use their own discretion and judgment without requiring Lee to micromanage the tactical details of battles. This suited Lee's command style. As he explained to a Prussian military observer, quote, I plan and work with all my might to bring the troops to the right place at the right time. With that, I have done my duty. From that point on, it was his corps commanders who must take charge, or as Lee put it, quote, it is my general's turn to perform their duty, end quote. Fortunately for Lee, in Jackson and Longstreet, he had officers, for the most part, who could fill that bill. But in anyone else's hands, a corps the size of Jackson's or Longstreet's might simply be too big to command effectively during a campaign. And so, rather than merely appoint a successor to Stonewall, Lee peeled off brigades from Jackson's and Longstreet's old commands, and together with the addition of new troops from North Carolina, created an entirely new Third Corps in the Army of Northern Virginia. Robert E. Lee told Davis that he had been thinking of making this change for some time. Lee had already noticed that at times, even with Jackson and Longstreet, controlling a corps of upwards of 30,000 men was too much for one man. A formation that size could be extremely difficult to control, as it was often spread over large distances, which made communication uncertain. This was a problem because, for a military commander, communication is the essence of control. The only practical option was to have three smaller corps. This would not only make each corps commander's job easier, but it would also benefit Lee as the head of the army. You see, having three maneuver units of any size is what the military call using a triangular organization, and this has distinct operational and tactical advantages over maneuvering with just two units. Now, that may be hard to wrap your head around, but just think of it this way. With three units, a commander has greater flexibility. He can advance with two units ahead and leave one in reserve, or he can have one ahead and two back in reserve. But the essential point is that he can normally expect to have a readily available reserve, 
and having a reserve is important because a commander can use it to either reinforce success or use it to meet an unexpected threat or use it to threaten an enemy flank or use it to cover a withdrawal if things take a turn for the worse. But with only two units, a commander's options with regard to any of those actions are substantially reduced. The point we really wanted to make here is that Robert E. Lee anticipated this reorganization of the army into three smaller corps would not only benefit each corps commander, but would give him, as head of the army, more options. That is, it would give him greater flexibility in how to use the army, making the Army of Northern Virginia a more lethal instrument in his hands. And lethal, from Lee's standpoint, would obviously be a good thing, because remember why he was marching north. He was marching north to deliver a knockout blow to the enemy, and having a more lethal instrument in his hands would make it more likely he could strike that knockout blow. So there you go. Since we're talking about Robert E. Lee's reorganization of the Army of Northern Virginia, this might be a good time to step back and take a minute to look at how a Civil War army was organized. Okay, well, let's start at the top. A Civil War army, whether it be Lee's army or the Federal Army at Gettysburg or Ulysses S. Grant's army out at Vicksburg, a Civil War army was the sum total of all the formations or units of all arms in a given geographical area under one commanding general. And by all arms, that just means infantry, artillery, cavalry, and supporting services like quartermaster troops or men in the Signal Corps or what have you. Exactly. Now, Union armies generally took their name from their department, usually the river near which they operated, while the Confederates named theirs from the area in which they were active. At times, this could be confusing. For example, the Federals had an Army of the Tennessee, and the Confederates an Army of Tennessee, with just the word the making the distinction. Of course, here at Gettysburg, we'll have Lee's Army of Northern Virginia and Meade's Army of the Potomac. So, an army was the largest formation, and then each army was composed of a number of corps. And if you aren't familiar with military units, you might have been wondering why we're talking so much about corps and thinking it's C-O-R-E. But in the military, a corps is C-O-R-P-S. It comes from a French term popularized by Napoleon and then adopted by other armies around the world. Corps were established in the Federal Army in March 1862 and formally adopted by the Confederates in November of that year. During the Civil War, an infantry corps was essentially a small army in that it was usually an all-arms and services formation with its own staff. And an all-arms and services formation just means that each corps 
in and of itself was comprised of infantry, artillery, cavalry, and support troops so that it could, if necessary, operate on its own, away from army command. Really, that just means a corps had the capability to fight on its own until the rest of the army came up. Right. In any case, at Gettysburg, Lee's army was officially made up of the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Corps, although in practice they were referred to by their general's name, Longstreet's, Ewell's, or Hill's Corps. Then Meade's command was divided into 7 infantry corps and 1 cavalry corps. The Federal Infantry Corps were numbered 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 5th, 6th, 11th, and 12th, and were referred to it in that way, that is, numerically, rather than by their general's name. The largest of the three Confederate corps at Gettysburg was Hill's, with almost 22,000 men, while the smallest was Ewell's, which numbered around 20,500. This was obviously just a minor difference. However, the Army of the Potomac's 7 Infantry Corps varied in strength from 14,000 for the 6th Corps to 9,250 for the 11th Corps. You'll note, of course, that meant the Federal's 11th Corps was less than half the size of a Confederate Corps. The last thing we'll say before moving on down the order of battle is that each of the three Confederate Corps was commanded by a lieutenant general, while a major general commanded each of the Federal Corps. All right, so far we have each army, and each army is comprised of a certain number of corps, and then next is divisions. At Gettysburg, a division would be composed of either infantry or cavalry. At the battle, the Confederates would have ten divisions, nine infantry and one cavalry, while the Federals would have 22 divisions, 19 infantry and three cavalry. But the average strength of a Confederate division at Gettysburg was 6,900 men, while the average divisional strength on the Federal side was 3,800, or slightly over half that of a rebel division. That difference in size between opposing divisions is striking, as not even the largest federal division was equal in numbers to the smallest Confederate division. That huge discrepancy should be kept in mind during any discussion of the fighting during the battle when you're talking about this division or that division. Okay, so we have Army, then Corps, and then Division. Next is Brigade. Now, back in Napoleon's day, the tactical unit on a battlefield was the battalion. That is, commanders counted battalions when assessing the relative strength of field armies. However, during the Civil War, what mattered the most to commanders was usually the number of brigades that were available. At Gettysburg, Robert E. Lee had 42 brigades, 37 infantry, and 5 cavalry, with an average strength of just over 1,500 men. The Confederate brigades were mostly commanded by brigadier generals, with a smattering of colonels, and consisted of between 3 and 6 regiments, but with a majority having 4 or 5. 
Keep in mind that brigade commanders of both sides were expected to lead from the front in battle, and at Gettysburg, with only a few exceptions, they did so. Among Confederate brigade commanders, including those who took temporary command during the battle, 22 became casualties, 6 killed or mortally wounded, 12 wounded, and 4 captured. The corresponding losses on the Federal side were 20, 7 killed or mortally wounded, 11 wounded, and 2 captured. At Gettysburg, George Meade had 58 brigades, 49 infantry, and 9 cavalry. That meant he had 16 more brigades than the rebels. The average strength of a Federal brigade was about 1,400 men, which meant there was little practical difference in the average brigade size for both sides of the battle. Union Brigade Command was split fairly evenly between Brigadier Generals and Colonels. Because the average brigade strength was nearly equal for both sides, anyone who wants to do a rough estimate of opposing strengths during any discussion of any portion of the fighting at Gettysburg would do well to count the number of brigades deployed or available, rather than counting regiments or divisions. Remember, on a Civil War battlefield, the primary tactical unit was the brigade. And then each brigade was composed of a number of regiments. So we have Army, then Corps, then Division, then Brigade, and then Regiment. Theoretically, a regiment at fully established strength and commanded by a colonel would be slightly over 1,000 men strong, divided into 10 companies with 100 men in each company. However, by 1863, deaths, desertions, disease and sickness, and discharges all had the effect of reducing the actual strength of most regiments considerably, and I do mean considerably. At Gettysburg, the average Confederate infantry regiment numbered 334 men, while the average strength of a regiment on the Federal side was 298. That meant a company of 30 men instead of 100 was the average for both armies at the battle. As for the opposing horsemen, a Confederate cavalry regiment at full strength would have between 600 and 1,000 men, divided into 10 squadrons. But like the infantry, the ravages of war had taken a toll on them, so that at Gettysburg, a rebel cavalry regiment averaged just 290 men. On the Union side, the average strength of a cavalry regiment was 352, which wasn't great, but still well above their rebel counterpart. We'll look at how the artillery was organized at a later time. So the last thing we wanted to mention in this section, where we've been talking about formations and numbers, is that of the 12 states that contributed soldiers to the Army of Northern Virginia at Gettysburg, three supplied nearly 68% of the total, those three being Virginia, then North Carolina, and then Georgia. Across the lines, the Army of the Potomac had troops from 18 states plus the U.S. Regular Army. The three largest contributors provided almost 59% of Meade's force, 
with those top three being Pennsylvania, then New York, and then the U.S. Army. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, so back to Robert E. Lee's reorganization of his army. Under the new setup, each corps in the Army of Northern Virginia would now contain three divisions, and each division between three and five brigades. There would necessarily be a good deal of shuffling and reshuffling of units. New staffs would have to be created, old ones restructured, colonels in command of regiments would find themselves scratching their heads over the command style and personalities of new brigade commanders, and so on up the chain of command. However, despite the big changes, Lee felt confident about the ordinary rank-and-file soldiers' ability to adjust. Lee believed, as he told one of his generals, quote, There never were such men in an army before. They will go anywhere and do anything if properly led. But, of course, proper leadership was the catch. In his book, Gettysburg, A Testing of Courage, Noah-Andre Trudeau writes, quote, Lee met with his top leadership on June 1st. The trio he had selected to head his restructured infantry corps would be vital to the success of his forthcoming campaign because when it came to his personal command style, Lee took a decentralized approach. His role, as he saw it, was to prescribe the overall shape, broad direction, and desired objectives of an operation, which his subordinates would then implement as the situation allowed. Trudeau continues, pointing out that, quote, rather than issue direct orders, Lee preferred to suggest the most reasonable course of action, trusting that his generals would share his vision. Lee and the late Stonewall Jackson had been a well-matched pair. 
it remained to be seen if the new team would work together as well. Lee's anchor in the reorganized Army of Northern Virginia was 42-year-old Lieutenant General James Longstreet. Under the previous system, he and Stonewall Jackson had each commanded half of Lee's force, and now Longstreet retained most of his old units in the First Corps. Filling the top slots in the other two corps would be Richard Stoddard Yule and Ambrose Powell Hill, who were next in seniority among the Army's generals. The 46-year-old Dick Yule would lead the revamped 2nd Corps, which was basically Stonewall Jackson's old command. Under Jackson, Yule had developed into a first-rate division commander. However, Stonewall could be a a fickle master, shall we say. And what this taught Yule was to use his own judgment when he was on his own, but to wait for point-by-point orders when his superiors were close at hand. In forwarding Dick Yule's name to Jefferson Davis for promotion to Lieutenant General and elevation to Corps Command, Robert E. Lee said that he knew Yule to be, quote, an honest, brave soldier, who has always done his duty well, end quote. And if that sounds like lukewarm praise for a job promotion of this magnitude, well, it undoubtedly was just that, since Lee would sit down and have a long chat with Yule about elevating him to Corps Command and would later claim to have still harbored reservations about Yule due to a certain, quote, want of decision that Lee perceived in him. It didn't help Yule's case that he had been out of action for some nine months after a bullet smashed his left kneecap and splintered the bone below at the Second Battle of Manassas. The leg from the thigh downward had to be amputated, and he now got around tolerably well on crutches or a wooden prosthesis, but it remained to be seen just how he would hold up under the physical stress and strain of being back in the field during a campaign. At any rate, Yule, by all accounts, was the popular choice among the officers and men of the 2nd Corps to replace the irreplaceable Jackson, since they know he'd been Stonewall's most trusted divisional commander. The new 3rd Corps was a patchwork. It was constructed of elements drawn from the 1st and 2nd, along with other units that had recently been added to the Army of Northern Virginia. A.P. Hill, the 37-year-old Virginian Lee selected to lead the Corps, had a reputation as a hard fighter, both on and off the battlefield. He had locked horns more than once with Stonewall Jackson, and had also quarreled bitterly with Longstreet. In Lee's opinion, however, Hill was, as he told Jefferson Davis, simply, quote, the best soldier of his grade with me. The two new Corps commanders were only part of the major restructuring that Lee completed in record time. Out of the nine infantry divisions in the new setup, three were led by men untried at that level, and out of 37 brigades within the nine divisions, 13 were entrusted to officers with no previous command experience in that position. At any other point in time, such wholesale changes would have required an extended shakedown period before the Army was committed to a major movement, but Robert E. Lee couldn't wait. 
As the summer campaigning season drew closer with each passing day, time was the enemy of the Confederacy. The Army of Northern Virginia would therefore march north with quite a few top officers in new positions, officers who would have to prove on the job, while in the field, on campaign, that they were up to the burdens and responsibilities of command. With the reorganization of his army complete, Robert E. Lee put his troops in motion and launched the most daring campaign of his career. On Wednesday morning, June 3, 1863, the first of Lee's divisions marched out of their camps around Fredericksburg, where the Army of Northern Virginia had faced the Federals across the Rappahannock River since the previous year. The Confederates tramped westward up the south bank of the Rappahannock. Lee's plan was to swing his army wide to the left in order to get past the Army of the Potomac. He would move west and cross the Blue Ridge Mountains into the Shenandoah Valley. Once in the valley, screened by the mountains from the prying eyes of probing Yankee cavalry, the army would march northeastward, down the valley toward the Potomac River, and beyond toward the green fields and prosperous towns of Pennsylvania. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Lee's Lieutenants, A Study in Command by Douglas Southall Freeman. It's an oldie, but a goodie, and we thought we'd re-recommend it here with this episode. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then we wanted to let you know that just yesterday we released members episode number 97. Remember, we're using some members episodes now to look at Jeb Stewart's controversial ride to Gettysburg. Is that right? 97 members episodes? It seems hard to believe that pretty soon we'll be up to 100 members episodes. Yep, 97. That's what it says right here. Well then, it must be true. Okay, so a quick but heartfelt thank you to the newest members of the Strawfit Brigade, DC, Andrew, and JXG852. Also, thank you to Hayes H. for his donation. As we wrap up the show, we want to thank Spiritwood Music for their kind permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode of the podcast. For 300 shows now, we think it's been the perfect music to accompany the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time when we'll look at what was going on with the Army of the Potomac after the Battle of Chancellorsville. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.